You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.46, Perspective, our wrap-up episode for Gundam Double Zeta, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and I'm not doing an and this way. Darn it, I just did it. And I'm Nina, looking forward to being new to a new series. Or I guess movie next. We'll get a new series for you sooner or later. Mobile Soup Breakdown is made possible by the support of 459 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Matthew McKay. This podcast would not be possible without your support. So as we have done in previous seasons, this week we are going to take a little time to look back at Double Zeta as a whole rather than focusing on a particular episode. We are also going to compare it to what we've seen from Gundam in the past, and Nina is going to make some predictions about what she thinks is going to happen in the future. I will not be making predictions because that would be unfair. We also have the conclusion of Tom's coverage of the tale of the Heike. And the conclusion of Radio Free Shangri-La, right now. Trapped inside their Cubile mobile suits, the cast of Radio Free Shangri-La prepares for their psychic debut. And perhaps the closing night of their lives. Okay, sound effects cassette. Let's see if you are worth all the trouble. Sound effect number one. Man getting hit in the forehead. Whomp. Oh, that hurt. Number 14, Vintage Raygun. Zap, zap, pew, 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 zap. Oh, no. They can't all be like this. Number 35, Fuse Box Exploding. Zzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
Detective James Stryker takes the lead, followed by Captain Strobe Flanagan. Behind them, Lieutenant Vale Meadows guards the rear, her ray gun in hand. Outside, lightning rends the sky, and rumbling thunder shakes the building itself. A sound like music drifts up from the showroom below. Its source, hundreds of porcelain vases softly knocking against each other. We're almost to the top. I can see the lights up ahead. Flashlights, I think, from the way they're moving. At least three of them. I'm gonna check it out. Just stay quiet until I get back. Leaving his companions to wait in the stairwell, the detective vanishes silently into the darkness. After long minutes, he returns as stealthily as he left. What did you find? Alice is up there all right, and she's not alone. There are three men with her. One of them looks like Hector Pariah, but it's probably his twin brother, Adenauer. Gesundheit. What about the others? One of them looked like a secret police goon, probably working for Adenauer in the Ministry. I didn't recognize the last one. Were they armed? Someone put those holes in Macbeth. Good point. The way I see it, we're in a bad situation here. We've maybe got the element of surprise, but they've got numbers and a much better position. What if we went back downstairs? It's only a matter of time until they find the harrow, and we could ambush them as they leave. I think we should appeal to Alice's better nature. I can tell that there's still good in her. Have you lost your mind? I don't know. Captain Strobe has always had good intuition. See? It's settled. Hey, hey! Get back here. Alice! Federation Science Corps Computing Officer Alice C. Cuppitsworth. Are you up there? It's me. Strobe Flanagan, your old boss. Shoot that idiot. I have to help him. Not you, too. I'm getting too old for this. Against his better judgment, Detective Stryker charges into the fray. Bursting forth into Macbeth's upstairs storage room, he finds himself caught in a ferocious gun battle. Over here. Get down. Well, well, well. Seems the varmints have gone to ground all quick like. I don't care. I hired you to deal with problems like this, so deal with them. You heard the boss, lady. I ain't in a tearing hurry myself, but I'd sure appreciate it if the three of y'all would come out from behind that there real oak armoire. Let me ventilate you a bit with my trusty six-shooter. Well, that could have gone better. Fail! Your leg! It only grazed me, Captain. I'll, I'll be fine. I just... Can't move around much right now. I think I got the goon, though. We need a plan. I'm confident I can appeal to Alice's better nature. I can sense the good in her. Sir, please shut up. And I'm sorry, Detective. Even at my best, I don't think I could outshoot that guy. What if I draw his attention away from you? 
There's so much junk in here, I bet I can sneak halfway around the room before he notices me. That just might work. Okay, I'm ready when you are. Crouching low, Stryker picks his way around the periphery of the storeroom. He is careful not to give away his position until... Hey, over here, buddy. What in the heck are you doing over yonder? Taste Raygun, villain! Oh no. Run out of juice, huh, partner? Well, too bad, because I got plenty of bullets. Maybe you lack a few. Vail, no! Captain! Tarnation! In all my days, I ain't never seen a man so eager to die that he'd throw himself in front of a bullet like that. Why, sir? Why did you do that? I guess it wasn't very scientific of me. Well, it won't make no difference. You still ain't got a charge in that fancy pistol of yourn, and I still mean to end you. There's more than one way to use a ray gun, partner. With quick thinking, a strong arm, and perfect accuracy, Fail Meadows hurls her ray gun at the lone survivor's forehead. With a thud, he crumples to the ground. Ah! Another useless pawn lost. I didn't want to get my hands dirty, but it looks like I'll just have to finish you myself. Too bad you are all out of guns to throw. It doesn't have to be like this, Alice. I never did like you, Lieutenant Meadows. And now that I see you on the verge of tears over that buffoon of a captain, oh, I'm going to enjoy this. See? Mine's still charged. Wait! She's standing in front of the... As Vale throws herself to the floor, Alice's stray blast strikes the room's fuse box. It explodes in a shower of white-hot metal. Precious antique scrolls become instant torches, and in mere moments, the room is a sea of flames. <coughs> Alice! you <laughs> I can't leave the captain Zabibi <laughs> Excuse me, nurse, could you tell me which room Vale Meadows is in? Bethany, I can't believe you came to see me. Of course I did. We're friends, aren't we? Zabibi pulled us out of Macbeth's shop just before the building collapsed. He says it's all thanks to his redundant lungs. Zabibi! 
The official report blamed cheap construction and shoddy maintenance, what I like to call a Shangri-La cocktail. No mention of the gunfight or the bodies. An old buddy on the force told me, off the record, that by the time the cops arrived, there was no sign of Alice or the others, and we never did find that Haro. Hello, Guildenstern. Ah, Mr. Hector Pariah. It brings me the utmost pleasure to inform you that Mistress Bethany is not in the mansion at the present, and therefore I shall not under any circumstances permit your entry. That's alright. I only came to say goodbye. Dare I hope that this goodbye is permanent? It is. If news of my brother's disappearance got out, it would cause a major scandal, so the Federation brass have asked me to... Step into his place until he returns. Then you intend to impersonate your twin brother for the rest of your life, if need be? I suppose I do. Uh, but hasn't he a family, a wife, and young daughter? Yes, but I'm confident I can be at least as good a husband and father as he would have been. And anyway, I think some experience as a father figure will be good for me. The client was disappointed but her friendship with the Haro's previous owner was as strong as ever. Vale, dear, I want you to meet my very best friend in the entire Earth sphere, Margarita. Margarita, this is my new friend Vale. She's been telling me the most incredible stories about my old Haro. How do you do, Vale? I've heard so much about you. Seems our friend Bethany has quite the affinity for dangerous women. I went back to the site of Macbeth's shop and poked around in the rubble. Found the remains of a ledger. One entry caught my eye. A vintage Haro sold around the time I left for Earth. The customer was listed as a Mr. G. I asked some of the others. Mr. G? That must be Glemmy Toto. Oh, but he got vaporized during the war. Another dead end in a case full of them. Well, that's how it goes sometimes. We mourn our dead, regret our failures, and then we move on. But, Mistress Bethany, I thought you'd be distraught to learn that your fiancé Hector has disappeared. Oh, Guildenstern, you ill-informed buffoon. I don't want to marry Hector anymore. You don't? No, I want to marry Vale, or perhaps Margarita. Margarita? Oh, how dreadful. What's really dreadful is that I don't know how I'm ever going to pick. Ooh, I know. Why don't we call that private detective and ask him to solve the case of who should Bethany Computesworth marry? That's just how it goes sometimes. So we have finished yet another series of Gundam. It took us just about exactly a year. Uh, this episode is airing on August 7th, 2021, and our first episode of Double Zeta aired on August 8th, 2020. I had hoped to feel more 
strong and triumphant going into the last episode this season. But as I mentioned to Tom earlier this week, I feel more like I'm limping across the finish line of a marathon. (laughs) Yeah, it has been an exhausting year. Well, really, it's been an exhausting several years. And I have to imagine that this is probably very similar to how the team responsible for double Zeta felt since they had just made Zeta and then went immediately into making double Zeta. It's most of the same staff, most of the same writers, most of the same directors, and a lot of the same animators. So our feeling of exhaustion <laughs> with this uh, with this story probably closely reflects how the actual creators were feeling, which I am going to chalk up as a positive. It is uh, method criticism. It's very avant-garde. We are doing something new and innovative here. The only way to truly understand Double Zeta is to be totally exhausted. To be a little more serious for a second, I think it's very easy to discount the cumulative mental and emotional exhaustion of the past year and a half. The constant caution and vigilance, the constantly changing and unpredictable landscape of COVID in the world. Just the unrelenting torrent of bad news. The disappointment of every time we thought things were getting better, only to find that they were in fact not. Uh, We were talking about how a year ago, when we started this season, we would have thought that by now things would be more or less back to normal. Uh, Early on in COVID, back in early 2020, I thought for sure a vaccine was going to take two years, at the minimum. But it never occurred to me that once they had it, there would be mass refusal to get it. That just didn't register as a possibility, and yet here we are. Just the constant grief and uncertainty and inability to plan, it takes a toll. We're sure on on all of you as well. And one of the consequences of that has been that uh, as going out and doing things became increasingly dangerous and uh, as we stopped doing that, of course, naturally we started to focus more and more on the work of the podcast. Uh, And You know, it has occasionally been a a great comfort and relief for us, and we hope that it has more than occasionally been one for you, whether we liked the episode in question or not. I think we went into Double Zeta, despite everything we've just said, pretty excited for it. The opening starts off uh, very energetic. The change in tone was, at least for us, very welcome after the, the sort of grim, depressing finale of Zeta. For all that I have a lot of complaints about Double Zeta, I do think there are some things that it did exceptionally well, and there were quite a few things I really liked about it. I think, on balance, if someone is really interested in Gundam, I would tell them to watch Double Zeta. You're sort of uh, hinting at one of the big questions that hangs over Double Zeta, which is that in the English-speaking fan community for a very long time, the conventional wisdom has been that that all but the most hardcore completionists should skip Double Zeta. Um, I don't think that's our position after having watched it, despite our disappointment with the ending uh, and our our significant issues with various parts of it. I would say watch Double Zeta. That looks like a recommendation to watch from both of us. (laughs) 
something that I would hope is fairly uncontroversial <laughs> as an opinion about Double Zeta, the animation could be so fun and expressive and stretchy <laughs> and bouncy <laughs> in a way that we hadn't seen, in a way that was very distinct and that fit a lot of the earlier, more fun tone of the show. Right. The um, the sort of squash and stretch, the smears and other animation techniques that have a, a kind of comedic effect are very much front and center. It's easy to see them, whereas in other series that we've watched, more effort is made to conceal those kinds of things. I mean, certainly there's a lot of, um, you know, squashing and stretching and in the in-betweens in First Gundam, though very little in Zeta, as it turns out. And it's part of creating that tone of lighthearted humor, of physical comedy that we do get very strongly throughout Double Zeta, especially in the first half. And it isn't just in the animation techniques, but also in the quote-unquote acting of the show, the way characters are posed, the way they're positioned, the way they move. Judo crouching like a gremlin on the outside <laughs> of his petite mobile suit. Or the, the Zeta or the double Zeta? I don't even remember. <laughs> I just remember his little... Like that feral goblin child crouches on the, on the outsides of lots of things. Yep. Scrabbling around over them. And those aspects of the animation were one of the things I really liked in this series. That being said, I do think the quality of the animation, if you can view that in an objective kind of way, is lower than it was in Zeta. Related to that. I have a speculation. <laughs> um, many of our complaints about this series can be chalked up to a sense that it was not getting the time and attention it needed mm -hmm. to be good, the time and attention that we think it deserved. <laughs> that it was neglected. And my guess was that a lot of the team was already having their attention pulled away by the next project long before Double Zeta was finished. I think that's very likely true. There's also a trend which you can observe in anime generally, where for most shows, most of the time, the quality of the uh, production of the animation of everything does decline toward the end of the show. Um, you know, sort of by that point, you've either hooked your viewers or you're never going to hook them and resources start being shunted away into other projects. We didn't see so much of that in First Gundam or in Zeta, but it's very apparent in Double Zeta, that decline. And I do think that that is partly because the team is moving to other projects. I also wonder, you know, I mentioned last episode that it's going to be years before Gundam returns to television. And I have to wonder if maybe Double Zeta had underperformed, if the TV station, if the sponsors were not getting out of it what they wanted. And so as a result, they were putting fewer resources into it over time. And also then the decision makers at the top who were guiding the whole Gundam franchise decided then to pivot to movies and OVAs for the next five or so years. And frankly, after two years of weekly Gundam, maybe the market was glutted. Maybe the audiences were as tired of it as the creators. I think a lot of our problems with the show come down to a sense of inconsistency, a sense of the tone really 
bouncing all over the place of the uh, seriousness of any particular event being wildly variable, of the animation being inconsistent, of the continuity errors and the writing problems, and then the larger structural story problem of um, you know really struggling to either set things up properly or pay them off after they've been set up. At many points in this show, the lack of clarity about what the tone is supposed to be, about what meaning the show is trying to convey, undercuts scenes that could otherwise be really excellent. Yeah. They lose a bunch of emotional impact because they haven't been set up in the right way or because the tone feels off. I mean, a great example for that is Rasara's death on Tiger Bomb. Because those are largely humorous episodes. And because of the animation limitations that they were working under, a lot of the animation is very uh, jerky and partial, which has a additional humorous effect. And then the way Rosara's death is portrayed, if she hadn't died, it would have been a really funny scene. But she does die, inexplicably, and then we are told, essentially, by the show that this is tragic when it, it isn't. It, it simply is not. Um, you know, there are other moments like that where the show just doesn't seem to know what it's doing or how it wants us to feel. And perhaps I would feel differently if I hadn't seen First Gundam and Zeta already. But the way in which Double Zeta completely ignores the mass casualties in Core 3 Axis and Mosa and does not address the mass civilian casualty in those places in any way feels really gross. It does. It does. I mean, there's a lot of that in those final episodes. I mean, even besides not addressing the mass death, like the complete lack of any recognition of Pudu 2 following her death is disgusting. It, it's like, it makes me so angry. I'm not going to go into it right now, but just flames out of the sides of my head. And then on the other hand, the episodes dealing with the colony drop in Dublin are done so well. Yeah. And they're horrifying and they're sad, but they're supposed to be. I think the Dublin episodes do handle that mass death better than in First Gundam or Zeta. It's really a high point of the whole Gundam franchise thus far. And in some ways, that only <laughs> encourages our frustration at the show's failures because we know they can do it right. <laughs> we know they're capable of putting together really incredible episodes. Another bit of tragedy that's dealt with quite well, Lena's death comes out of nowhere, but it doesn't feel cheap. It feels dramatic. It feels sad. She winds up not dead, shrug. <laughs> well, see, but... <laughs> that's another, that's an issue of setting it up without paying it off, which happens a lot in this show. Like, we have the reveal that Lena has actually survived, but then she doesn't do anything for the rest of the show. At least, she doesn't do anything that she couldn't have done as a new type ghost. So, what was the purpose of that? And, you know, not everything needs to have a point. It doesn't need to all be like a perfect clockwork mechanism of a plot. But like, what was the point of that? What was the point of revealing at the end that Minova, the Minova that we've been seeing throughout the whole show was actually a body double? So I have a guess. Okay. I have a guess about this. I'm ready to hear your guess. 
that some of the loose ends at the end of Double Zeta and some of the sense that the ending is incomplete or unsatisfying is because that last episode isn't the real ending. The real ending is the movie that's coming out. Hmm. Well, for once, we won't have to wait very long to see if your <laughs> guess is right or not. I do think that last episode has a lot to support this theory of yours. There is a lot of like clearing the table without changing anything so that the status quo will be in a certain position going into the movie. Like Haman gets eliminated and it turns out that her whole thing didn't accomplish very much, didn't change the status quo at all. Uh, the Federation reasserts its authority. Shar is alive and out there somewhere. Doing plots, whatever they are. Minerva is alive and out there somewhere. Has been missing for the past year. Glemmy is gone, didn't really affect very much, except for all of those millions and millions of deaths. Judo is out of the way. Exactly. Sela is back in. Yeah, a lot of pieces have been moved off the board. Well, and Bright, who was clearly moved out of the Federation and into Ayug for the Zeta Double Zeta series, has now basically moved back into the Federation. We've sort of begun talking about it at this point, so I think I should get into some of my other predictions. I know the name of the movie coming out. I know it's Char's counterattack. So, Char's back. Who is he attacking? I can't imagine. Is that a facetious I can't imagine or a real one? I mean, it's real because a counterattack means someone has just attacked him. And who? Why? I. <laughs> Interestingly, this is just about that title and not a spoiler, but... Char's Counterattack was actually originally proposed as the title for the series that eventually became Zeta. At that point, the storyline was significantly different. Mm -hmm. I do think Char is the one who has Minerva. We had the whole setup in Zeta about how he felt like he'd failed her and failed Axis because he let Haman control Minerva and that allowed Haman to garner all this power. And in Zeta, he does seem preoccupied with um, the young with like raising, mentoring these young kids. Like, you know, he has that line about how he thinks experience as a father figure will be good to him. He <laughs> adopts Camille, Katz, Shinta, Kum throughout the course of the series. Uh, he neglects all of them, of course, because he's not actually, you know, good at doing this, but he does have a preoccupation with it. Because so much of UC Gundam seems to be about how people never learn. There's likely to be some kind of crackdown in Side 3 and on the people of Side 3. And an accompanying refugee crisis since several massive colonies were just, you know, irrevocably damaged. Uh, even if only very few people manage to get out, some people will have managed to survive either in undamaged parts of those colonies that were sealed and had some air supply or by getting out in ships and shuttles. You will have survivors who are now homeless. And so far, every Gundam series that we've covered has dealt with displacement. So I think that is likely to be a continuing theme. Is that it for uh, predictions? What color do you think Shar's mobile suit will be in the movie? Hmm. Red and gold. <laughs> That's not a bad combination. 
you finished your predictions on the uh, mention of themes, and I do have on my outline here that we need to talk about the major themes of Double Zeta. So maybe that's where we should go next. During the course of our coverage, we did identify a couple of what we thought of as the major themes of Double Zeta. Nina early on pointed out the inability of people to understand each other, even when it feels like there is the possibility of understanding. You know, in first Gundam, no amount of understanding could ever have brought Amuro and Char together. In Zeta, no amount of understanding could ever have brought Camille and Yazan together. But it really does feel in Double Zeta as though, had circumstances been only slightly different, Judo and Mashima could have been friends. Judo and Kiara could have been friends. And right up until that last episode, we still have incidences of misunderstanding that contribute to conflict. Haman thinks that the nail Argama somehow made Mosa collide with Court 3. Mm-hmm. And in a way, I feel like Haman's perpetual insistence that Judo is within her power, that she's just like, like one more encounter away from recruiting him to her side comes from that same sense of misunderstanding, that she just can't recognize how different they are. And Judo can't either. I mean, you see him in that final moment before she dies, you know, he's leaning outside of his busted cockpit, reaching a hand out to her. And uh, we know that Haman would never take that hand. But Judo, even unto the end, believes that she might. Judo thinking he can save Kiara, that he could just tell her not to fight, and somehow that does something. Yeah, misunderstandings are a through line through the show. And for all that it's never extremely clear or consistent, connects with some of how we've heard new typism described throughout the Universal Century Gundam so far has a kind of depth of understanding between people, uh, an ability to not just hear them or listen to them, but to understand them on a deeper level. And I think we see that through the main cast, the kids, the Gundam team on the Nail Argama, because they are united in heart and soul and purpose. They have an understanding with each other that is, I think, unique within Gundam so far. And this is one way in which Judo is distinguished from the space boys who preceded him. While Judo is the main character, the focal point, the most powerful of them, the best fighter, the one in the Gundam, well, the one in the Double Zeta Gundam, nonetheless, he is actually a much smaller presence in the show than his predecessors. And I think that's because the characters around him are, are bigger. It's more about the group and less about the individual. I also just appreciated the introduction of a protagonist who's not a gloomy loner. <laughs> he has his low periods. He certainly goes through spans of a couple of episodes where he feels strongly, what is this all for? Why am I doing this? I don't want to do this. But by and large, he is this relatively happy, energetic young man with a tight-knit group of friends. See, this is why Haro's role in this show is so much smaller than in the prior ones, because Judo is already Genki. He does not need a little robot to remind him to be Genki. He doesn't try to do everything himself the way especially Camille did. Until the end. Speaking of the end, not really following the themes that have been established so far. Um... He's not a genius, 
which really does distinguish him from the others. Like he's he's good and he's got street smarts and common sense and good friends and like a really strong moral compass. But he's like a very different character from the ones we've met so far. But you can't really look at that and look at quote unquote genius without considering the class aspect oh, 100%. of this show. Because if he had had the same opportunities and the same support and the same upbringing as Amaro and Camille, would he also have been considered a genius? It's impossible for us to know. Right. I mean, we do have to recognize that like Amaro and Camille are rich kids. Right. And Judo is from a completely different class. And class struggle is a major part of the show. It's one of the biggest themes. I am hesitant, given my assumption that the story is kind of incomplete as of the ending, to make a, a total judgment call about this. But one of the things that we sort of started to talk about in our coverage of the last episode, but didn't address front on, I don't think, is that while class struggle has been an important part of the entire series and has come up repeatedly basically everywhere that our team go is that struggle still part of their lives at the end of the show or have they been co-opted well is this a show about quote-unquote social mobility or is it a show about class struggle is the idea that they have escaped their class now through everything that they've done or not that is a good question i mean their portrayal in that final scene with everybody in their new outfits yeah, does um, suggest, yeah, class mobility, that they have risen. Uh, we don't know at this point what becomes of these various characters, but it wouldn't surprise me if, for instance, they had been given sort of cushy jobs at Anaheim as the AUG was dismantled as a, you know, thank you for your service. Please don't steal mobile suits and go back to fighting for your, your ideals of justice. It might just be the sort of things that I read and watch. I feel like stories about social mobility have sort of fallen out of fashion lately. <laughs> Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> but remembering that this show was from the mid, mid to late 80s, those kinds of stories were still extremely popular. And there was, frankly, more social mobility at that point than there is now. I mean, this is, I believe, the early days of the bubble economy. And one of the features of the bubble economy is that there is a lot of uh, sort of prosperity going around. A lot of people have a lot more money than they did before. But as the bubble economy wears on, you know, we call it the bubble economy, but it's really an asset bubble which is to say that things like real estate are going to skyrocket in value. And the effect of that over time is going to be that people who were already well off when it started are going to get very rich and people who were marginal when it started are going to lose ground. It may be that at this point there's somewhat more optimism about the economy than there would be in just a few years. And remembering that many of these writers and creators grew up in the post-war period, a time of very rapid improvement in style of living for a lot of people that could be part of the story. You know, young kids from the slums make good. And yet I don't think we can ignore that element of class struggle that has existed throughout the whole show. Uh, definitely not. It's been too consistent. <laughs> Even there close to the end, uh, those episodes on the Cicero asteroid 
feature like an active armed uprising by a workers union essentially against the uh, the unconscionable conditions in which they're being made to work we have that scene where the crew of the Argama essentially unionizes in the face of Wong Li. We have the contrast between the wealthy colonial population in northern Africa with their air-conditioned malls and the local population living in the desert. And that, I think, is an example of the way Double Zeta starts to mesh these different uh, concepts and to sort of argue that they're similar, like that the class struggle and the anti-colonial struggle are actually closely aligned and basically the same thing. Because those scenes in North Africa do establish both a class dynamic, but also a colonial one. Foreigners, Franks, who build this like consumer utopia underneath this uh, impoverished, marginal, desert agricultural community. And then in uh, the Ireland episodes, we do see Beach Mansion, we see the leadership of the Federation in this former colony. Um, you're living it up in this old colonial mansion, but also there's this element of the, the class issue of synthetic meat. and Well, and the, uh, the show makes very clear that often those class issues are more relevant to whether or not you're going to have interests in common with someone than purely what side they're on. Because Fa overhears those Federation politicians or Federation officials at the airport in Scotland, I think, talking about how, oh, it's actually good if a bunch of people die in Dublin. Haman is essentially doing their dirty work. There's also a strong sense of the people at the top not just being out of touch and callous, but also of rampant corruption in a way that has, I think, been implied in prior Gundam shows, but not shown in quite the same way. And this starts very early on, you know, with Mashima sending a briefcase full of gold ahead of his ship before docking at Shangri-La. And this coincides with everything we see and hear about the Shangri-La colony breaking down. You know, there aren't enough resources to keep the weather control system working, probably because a lot of it is being siphoned off into the pockets and the wine cellars of men like Mr. Damar. What isn't being spent on mobile suits? One of the other struggles that comes up consistently, or fairly consistently throughout the show, is intergenerational. And what you identified as a preoccupation among the older generation with this idea of being replaced, of becoming redundant. And it's interesting with that generational conflict coming to the fore, that this show's cast skews significantly younger than in the past. A lot of the older characters from Zeta, for instance, have either died or been removed from the story one way or another, and those who have replaced them are younger. Judo is the youngest protagonist so far at 14. His friends are all around his age, which makes them younger than the average age of the Zeta cast. And then we have all of these um, you know, eight, nine, ten, and eleven-year-old girls, Minova, or Minova's body double, the Pudus, Lena, Rutina, and that's an age group that hasn't really figured in Gundam before. I think this shift younger is uh, part of why the tone is lighter, part of why it's more energetic, um, but it also does make it, quite ironically, more grim to see these even younger kids put into these dangerous, 
difficult, morally compromised situations, to see them used and abused and discarded by their elders. I can't help but wonder whether the decision to have the cast in general be younger might have come from the sponsor. That in the interest of selling toys, or for other demographic and selling advertising reasons, they wanted a younger audience for this show than for the previous ones. And so wanted a younger protagonist, younger main characters. And then the writing and production team just still made a Gundam show <laughs> but with those <laughs> younger characters. I mean, that may very well be true. We know, for instance, that this was an era when young girl characters were very popular. I was also reading recently, uh, Mark Simmons tweeted a little bit about the uh, background of First Gundam and how at the studio level, when they were initially sort of laying out the basic groundwork for this show, even before Tomino and his team came on board, they looked at uh, Space Battleship Yamato, which at that time was the, you know, the biggest, hottest thing, and they identified in it one of its failings being that the cast was too old. They were too old for kids to uh, really connect to them. And so built into the DNA of Gundam from that very beginning was the notion that they needed a younger cast. And it wouldn't surprise me if somebody had done that same, you know, evaluation of Zeta and decided that one of the problems with Zeta was that the cast was too old. And I bring this up periodically, but I think it's been a while since I have, so I'll bring it up again. In general, when we're talking about shows aimed at kids and teens, your target audience is slightly younger than the main characters because it's a bit aspirational, but slightly younger, like two to three years. Middle school kids watch shows about high school aged kids. High school aged kids watch shows about college kids kind of a thing. One other major difference in Double Zeta compared to the previous Gundam shows we've watched is the significance of the sibling relationship. And in Double Zeta, the sibling relationship has really pushed out a lot of the other relationships that we saw in Zeta. There are basically no romantic relationships in Double Zeta. I know there's Judo and Rue, kind of, and there's L and Bicha, sort of. And L and Judo, kind of. Yeah, a little bit. But nothing like the Cats and Sarah bit, or the Camille and Four bit, or the Rekoa and Quattro and then Sirocco bits. Like, those were major parts of Zeta that are just absent in Double Zeta. And in their place, we have all of these sibling relationships. And our previous protagonists didn't have any siblings at all. Amaro and Camille both struggled to make connections, period. But Judo comes into this with connections built in to his friends, of course, but also to his sister. And when she leaves the narrative, he then transfers that bond onto uh, LP Puru. I do wonder if some of this may be an echo of what we saw with uh, Rosamia in Zeta, where she fixated on the idea of an older brother, first Camille and then Gates Kappa at various different times. And then Pudu is also a cyber new type, also fixating on an older brother, um, also a bit unstable. But Double Zeta really goes all in on this. Yet I'm not sure if it ever says 
anything about it or does anything with it. I mean, it, it romanticizes the relationship. It romanticizes this very loving, very protective older brother with this very caring, caregiving younger sister who fulfills almost a motherly role a lot of the time. I think it absolutely romanticizes and idealizes that relationship. And that relationship as a substitute for the parent-child relationship, which has been uh, interrupted for both Judo and Lena. And of course, for Elpi Puru and everybody else, because nobody has parents in this show, including Bright's kids. I was going to say, and the parents don't have kids. <laughs> Speaking of Bright, one of the things that through parts of Double Zeta, I thought was handled very well was certain characters' development. I don't necessarily like where it ended up at the end of the show, and occasionally there were some leaps that didn't entirely feel <laughs> like they made sense. But there were things about the character development that felt really good to me, and one of the things that, for all that it makes me hate him, I think is great, is the development of Bright over time. And this idea of Bright as sort of a stand-in for Tomino, dealing with his own feelings of complicity in a society that he believes is doing wrong, is doing a lot of harm, is at best apathetic to the real problems and at worst exacerbating them, and also the sense of being an absent father. We have talked in the past about how hard a lot of these animators worked, the crazy hours, the... I mean, Tomino in particular is notorious for his astonishingly productive work schedule, his workaholic nature, and this is the period when he's really at his peak. And so he, he really would have been an absent father to his two kids and an absent husband to his wife. And when you read interviews from Tomino, he does talk about, you know, wanting to empower that younger generation to sort of do their thing. And perhaps seeing a bright at the end of Double Zeta, we're seeing a certain amount of crisis of confidence in Tomino that he can achieve that goal through these shows. That incredibly depressing line from Rue, no matter what you say, they're not going to get it. That feels like it's directed at the people making the show. And Bright's desire not to help Judo change the world, but to help Judo manage his feelings of anger and frustration at the world, because those are very different goals. Like helping young people do something may have felt impossible to Tomino under these circumstances. And so maybe a certain shift in thinking about these projects as maybe these aren't going to inspire young people to change the world, but maybe they can help young people process those feelings that they have about society, that anger. I read an interview once. Uh, I think I've brought this up before, but it's been a while. And uh, in it, Tomino is talking with another anime creator about their work and about including very dark elements in these projects meant for children. And they talk about how difficult the world is and how much more difficult it's going to get in the future. And, you know, he says something like, we must give the children a little bit of poison so that they can handle difficult times later on.
And now the finale for Heike Monogatari Breakdown. Action-packed, thrilling, medieval Japanese adventure. Hello again from the 12th century and the end of the Heian era. With the eastern half of Japan now in open revolt, divided among a tenuous alliance of Minamoto clan generals like the hot-headed young Kiso no Yoshinaka, the consummate strategist Minamoto no Yoritomo, or their scheming uncle Yukiie. And by the way, if you have been waiting patiently for the introduction of the Tale of the Heike's most famous Minamoto general, well, so have I. But he doesn't properly enter the tale until two-thirds of the way through the story. We'll get there today. Meanwhile, the Taira remain in the capital, enjoying the easy life even as every corner of the empire rises up against them. Their leader is now Munemori, son of Kiyomori. Their cousins and allies in the western provinces, including on the islands of Kyushu and Shikoku, have mostly managed to restore order. But the whole east of the country is in revolt, and it seems only a matter of time before one or another Minamoto leader makes a move against the capital. Much of the story that we have covered in this series was background or prelude stuff, but we pick up today solidly within the Genpei War. I've mentioned the name before, but I don't think I've ever explained where we get the name Genpei for this civil war. It's simple enough. Genpei is a contraction of the names of the Minamoto and Taira families. You probably already know that most kanji can be pronounced differently in different contexts, and so these two family names can be read in different ways. The character for Minamoto can also be read as Gen. The character for clan is generally read as she, but when it follows the n sound at the end of gen, it becomes ji. So the Minamoto clan can also be called the Genji. On the other side, Taira can also be read as Hei. You could call them the Heishi, meaning Taira clan, but it's more common, at least in English, to use the character for house, ke to refer to the extended family. Thus, the house of the Taira is the Heike. And that's why this is the tale of the Heike. It's their story. If you squish Gen and He together, the N sound at the end of Gen changes He to Pe, giving us Genpei as the name for the war between these two families. I have and will continue to use the terms Taira and Minamoto, to minimize confusion. It's now spring, 1183. The Taira have once more decided to send an expedition to destroy Kiso and recapture his northern stronghold, starting with the province of Echizen nearest the capital. At first, they encountered nothing but success, sweeping aside the supposedly impregnable fortress at Hiuchi and then mopping up scattered garrisons of Minamoto troops as they pushed into Kaga province. This Taira force was some 100,000 strong, divided into a flanking force of 30,000 commanded by one of Kiyomori's younger brothers, and a main force of 70,000 under the command of the now 25-year-old Koremori. Yes, I know he got banished for his catastrophic failure last week, but it doesn't seem to have stuck. On the other side, Kiso's forces had grown from the 3,000 he commanded last time but he was still outnumbered two to one. Knowing that he stood no chance in open battle, and hoping to repeat his success of the year prior, 
Kiso divided his army into seven detachments. He sent his uncle, Yukiie, with 10,000 horse to counter the enemy's flanking force. He sent the other detachments to take up positions hidden in the wilderness around Mount Tonami. As the Taira reached the mountain and began to descend toward the flat plain on its eastern side, Kiso's main force moved to block them. By now, he had only about 10,000 men against the 70,000 of the enemy force, but he arranged his troops so they would be difficult to count. And as he had predicted, the Taira were reluctant to move onto the plain with enemies so nearby. Their leaders said to each other, These Minamoto know this terrain and we do not. If we go down onto the plain, then they will be able to encircle us. We must prevent that at all costs. If we camp here on the mountain, the crags and cliffs will protect our rear. For a full day, Kiso's men engaged the Taira in a series of time-wasting archery duels to keep the vastly larger Taira force busy. The Taira, occupying a strong defensive position and suspecting nothing, were happy to play along with these delaying tactics. But as night fell, Kiso's other forces appeared. While the main force had been dilly-dallying with archery, the flanking detachments had almost completely encircled the Taira. The mountain slopes that had seemed so impassable were easy terrain for the men and horses who had grown up on them. Attacked from all sides in the dark, the Tyra soon broke and fled the only direction they could. And, just like before, Kiso had left them an escape route that led straight into a steep ravine. Horses and men poured over the edge, running, tripping, falling. When dawn broke, the Minamoto men found the ravine choked with heaps of bodies. And for once, the usual order of things was reversed. The highest lords were on the bottom, their least retainers on top. Kiso then took the core of his army and linked up with Yukiie, who had, as is becoming tradition for the guy, been defeated by the other Tyra force. Kiso's fresh troops plunged into the tired Tyra and defeated them as well. He then fought a series of running battles against the Tyra remnants and drove them back to the capital in disorder. Then he sent agents to the temple on Mount Hiei, one of the only remaining independent forces left in the capital. They had got this far by siding with the Taira, but now they agreed to join Kiso, were he to attack Kyoto directly. For Kiso, seizing the capital was the obvious next play. He did not yet have the men or the prestige to challenge Yoritomo directly, but control of the political and spiritual heart of the nation would make him a force to be reckoned with. And if he were to, let's say, liberate the young emperor into his own custody, then that might just make him master of the whole empire. When word reached the Taira in the capital of the Minamoto forces racing toward them, they dithered. At first, they prepared to defend the capital, but their numbers were too few and their allies too far away. Finally, Munemori gave the order to evacuate. The Taira men took the emperor, now five years old, into custody, along with the sacred regalia of the empire. Then they set fire to their own homes, and fled westward. They would have taken the retired emperor, Go Shirakawa, too, but he got wind of their plan and snuck himself and his wives out of the capital under cover of night, taking refuge among the monks of Mount Hiei. As the Taira abandoned their lives in the capital, the tale, as translated by Royal Tyler, has this to say of them. One day they were godly dragons above the clouds, dispensing rain. The next dried fish in the market. 
Fortune and misfortune travel the same road. Glory and decline are the two sides of one hand. In Hogan, long ago, they bloomed like spring flowers. In Jue, the present, they fall like autumn leaves. This is not the final end of the Tyra, not yet, but they are mostly stepping out of our story for the time being, as we focus on the momentarily triumphant Minamoto. Kiso and Yuki-ie entered the city from the north and south, respectively. They returned the retired emperor to his lodgings, and he quickly took charge of the civilian government, such as remained. Whether Go Shirakawa truly favored Kiso's faction or not, the presence of tens of thousands of Minamoto soldiers in the capital proved a sufficient inducement, and so Go Shirakawa issued a decree to Kiso, commanding him to take charge of his loyal forces and crush Munimori. The positions of rebel and loyalist changed in an instant. The provinces and estates that had been granted to the Taira were stripped from them and awarded instead to Kiso, Yukie, and their favored generals. Kiso and his men lived it up in the capital, and they quickly wore out their welcome. The tale goes into detail about just what sort of an uncouth lout he was, basically greedily snatching up every title and reward on offer, mocking the various grand counselors' names, but it also spends a lot of time talking about what a bumpkin he was. He didn't know the word for fresh, so he just called everything unsalted. He enjoyed rustic rice bowl-style meals that literally disgusted the high nobles so much they couldn't bear to eat them. He did not know how to wear the fancy court clothes, and he looked silly in them. He didn't know that you're supposed to board a carriage from the rear and leave by the front, which, I mean, come on. And so on. And none of this should be any kind of a surprise. The kid had spent almost his whole life in a remote mountain village learning to ride and to fight. So while Kiso and the commanders were looting the empire on a grand scale, his common troops were looting the capital in a more personal one. They took whatever they pleased, broke into palaces and storehouses and carried off whatever they liked. They even stole the clothes from the backs of passing travelers. Needless to say, he made few friends among the stodgy aristocracy. Soon, Tyra unrest in the western provinces drew him out of the capital on campaign, but no sooner had he gone than reports reached him that his uncle Yuki-ie, ever the slimeball, was taking advantage of his absence to cozy up to the retired emperor and slander the young Kiso. The tale does not go into detail about what he said, but it is easy to imagine that it was something like, come on, do you really want this kid who doesn't know how to enter a carriage to be in charge of the Minamoto? Surely an older, more polished warrior would be a better fit. Can you think of any older, more polished Minamoto warriors in the capital right now? So Kiso raced back to the capital, and Yukie fled with a retinue of only about 500 horsemen. He encountered a large Tyra force on the road, and he lost most of his retinue in the fierce fighting that followed. He was nearly killed himself, but no one in our story is better at surviving a disastrous loss than Yuki-ie. Meanwhile, some combination of Yuki-ie's slanders and the various offenses that Kiso and his men had actually committed proved sufficient to turn the retired emperor against him. Go Shirakawa gathered the warrior monks of Mount Hiei and survivors from Midera, augmented by an ad hoc force of stone-throwing city youths and local ruffians. 
Some of the professional warriors who had sided with Kiso against the Tyra now joined the retired emperor's ersatz army. Reduced now to only 7,000 diehard loyalists, Kiso once again found himself facing a superior force. Once more, he divided his men into seven battalions and sent them to attack the palace where the imperial force was gathering. Go Shirakawa had the larger army. We're told it was 20,000 in number, but only a fraction of those were proper fighters. Kiso ordered the palace burned, and as the flames caught hold, the hastily assembled imperial army scattered to the winds. Poets, secretaries, court ministers, scholars, police lieutenants, judges, abbots, and many others had gathered to expel Kiso, but they proved no match for his hardened soldiers. Those who fought were swiftly shot down in the streets. Those who fled fared only a little better. When the sun rose on the following day, smoke still lingering over the capital, Kiso had the heads of some 650 killed in the fighting hung up around the city. Among them were the abbots of both Mount Hie and Midera. Kiso, for his part, had lost practically no one. He gathered his advisors and discussed with them whether he ought to make himself emperor. They talked him out of it, but it is an astonishing moment as he seriously considers a move that every other character in the tale sees as absolutely unthinkable. Now that Kiso controls the capital and all its resources, it is easy to see how this lines up with Glemi's occupation of the Neozeon capital Axis at the end of Double Zeta. Glemi's willingness to turn Mosa into a weapon, and the reckless abandon with which he fought in the streets of Axis, neatly parallels Kiso's own total disregard for Kyoto and its inhabitants. And so, in turn, Haman's base on Core 3 begins to look rather a lot like Yoritomo's headquarters at Kamakura. So, now you know what has to happen next. Yoritomo is going to make his move against Kiso. Just as Haman sent Kiara and Mashima with the bulk of her forces to push Glemi out of Axis, Yoritomo dispatched his own massive army under the command of two generals, his surviving younger brothers, to roust Kiso from the capital and kill their upstart cousin. These two brothers were Minamoto no Yoshitsune, who was a legendary general and, like Yoritomo, remains one of Japanese history's most famous figures, and Minamoto no Noriyori, who was and I cannot emphasize this enough, the other one. Yoritomo's eastern forces quickly got the better of Kiso's now much-diminished northerners. Kiso himself gathered a band of his most trusted veterans and rode hither and yon throughout the capital, plunging into bands of enemies and putting them to flight with his terrifying skill. He fought like a man who knew he was going to die, but just wanted to find the right place to make his last stand. As he fought in skirmishes here and there, his own band grew as he rallied his own scattered men and shrunk as they were cut down. Now he had a hundred, now only six, now dozens. His most stalwart allies found him on the battlefield. Some had been his childhood friends, poor kids from mountain villages who had followed their playmate to war and all the way to the capital. One of these in this final company was a warrior equal in fame to Yoshitsune, the Onamusha, or woman warrior, Tomoe Gozen. Her mother had been Kiso's wet nurse. She had learned to ride and fight alongside him. 
She was as beautiful as she was strong, and she was almost unbelievably strong. A warrior worth a thousand. They said she could have fought gods or devils, if any had been brave enough to face her. She was the foremost of his captains. When battle began, she would ride straight for the enemy commander and cut him down, no matter how he tried to flee. She was among the last seven, then one of the last four. I think perhaps the Pudus, on whom Glemi relied, evoke Tomoe, both in their abundant strength and perhaps in their relationship to Glemi. Some secondary sources, magazine articles and the like, claim that Glemi and the Pudus were all test-tube babies created by Girinzabi before the One-Year War as part of a new type development program. If true, that would make Glemi something like their big brother, in the same way that Kiso was a milk brother to Tomoe. Like Puru, Tomoe survived the death of her brother boss. She meant to stay with him, but he ordered her to go. She refused. He insisted. Finally, she agreed, but she begged one last favor. Watch me fight just one last time. Then she charged alone into a band of thirty enemy horsemen. Their leader was famous for his strength, but she easily seized him, forced his helmet down against the pommel of her saddle, and cut off his head. None of his men dared face her after that, so she tossed the head aside, threw down her weapons, and rode off into the sunset. Well, proverbially, we actually do know that she rode east, but what becomes of her afterwards, no one can say. Soon, Kiso was reduced to just one man, his foster brother, Imai. Imai urged him to take his own life, to deny their foes the honor of killing so famous a warrior, and Kiso agreed. He rode for a nearby pine grove while Imai stayed behind to hold the enemy off. But then, a little way away, Kiso looked back to see how Imai was faring. In that moment, an arrow sped through a gap in his armor, took him through the neck, and killed him on the spot. Regrettably, the tale does not record whether the archer who did him in whispered, I'll always remember that you loved me, before loosing the shaft. So Kiso is dead, and so is Glemmy. And that is where our tale of the tale of the Heike must end. The tale itself continues, but it no longer tracks with the events of Double Zeta. Yoritomo's forces take control of the capital, and then go on campaign into the west. Yoritomo impresses everyone at court, and he receives greater and greater honors. His brother Yoshitsune wins great fame smashing the Taira at legendary battles like Ishinotani. Finally, Yoshitsune eradicates the last of the Taira at Dan no Ura. Watching the battle from aboard a nearby ship, the child emperor's mother takes up the sacred jewel and the sacred sword, hugs her son close, and then dives with him beneath the waves, drowning them both. By this point in the story, the young emperor must have been just about Minerva's age. Yoritomo goes on to establish a new order, called the Kamakura Bakafu, with himself as Shogun, a title that means something like Supreme General. He would manage the affairs of state from his new capital. In time, he grows suspicious of his brothers and turns against them. Yoshitsune allies with the old snake Yuki-ie and even gets an imperial order authorizing him to do away with Yoritomo, but even the famous general can't match his brother's power. Yoritomo's agents pursue Yoshitsune, and his most loyal retainers, 
and finally cut them down in a heroic last stand. Before too long, Yoritomo himself will die, and control of the realm will pass into the hands of his wife, the storied, much admired, and much reviled Hojo Masako. His children would become the puppets of her Hojo clan. I like to think of this ending to the tale as a kind of what-if for Haman. What if Judo hadn't been there? What if Haman had crushed Glemmy and established her own new order, her military government based at Side 3, locked into an uneasy truce with the civilian government on Earth? Even if Mashima and Kiara had survived the war, how long could they have lasted in Haman's paranoid, isolated reign? Could she and her successors, whoever they might have been, have maintained their independence as rulers? To lead an army alone is one thing, but a nation? The whole Earth sphere? Would she have made compromises? Would she have become compromised? Thank you for listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown. I cannot believe on some level that we made it this far and that we're still going. We are coming up on three years of having made this podcast and it's flown by. I've enjoyed it even more than I anticipated. Uh, We hope you all have too and have enjoyed how the podcast has changed and grown over time. We don't know exactly how long our hiatus is going to be at this point. We have been talking about how we want to structure the next season because since we'll be covering a movie and several shorts, it's going to be quite a bit different than covering an episode a week. And we're still figuring out exactly how that's going to work. We will also have some advanced research we need to do and we're going to take a little time off and rest and recuperate. We're still working on this year's promotional pin. Lots going on. Double Zeta merch is going to be going out soon as well. We have almost everything ready and some really cool items that I'm very excited to share with those patrons who receive seasonal merch boxes. We'll be posting updates on our various social media outlets during the hiatus, and there might be one or two special bonus episodes going up uh, during the hiatus but we'll see. But we'll see. Thank you all again, and we look forward to entertaining you some more next season. Thank you for all your support. We couldn't have gotten this far without you. And as always, thank you for listening. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. Radio Free Shangri-La is performed by the MSB players. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, gundampodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com. Or why not share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The only plausible explanation for the mass-produced cubelets appearing gray in one episode and black in the next 
is that they're actually different squadrons. The fate of the new type core that appeared in Vibration remains unknown. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. And thank you for listening. I actually think the children might be super into all the exposed blades. <laughs> well, we're back once again to talk about Double Zeta. Oh, we should probably do like some kind of... Some kind of outlining. Or some kind of proper intro like we mm-hmm. usually do. Not like super formal or anything, but like... Oh, you mean like... Similar to our usual <clears throat> intro. Like the, the full intro of an episode. Sorry, college kids. I did call you kids. I'm in my 30s now. It's allowed. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm still young and hip. I think you, all you college kids are based. Or I, I, I don't know what that means, actually. But you've got drip, which I'm told is good. You still called them kids, though. Nuts. And our previous protagonists were only children. Only children, no siblings. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got you. <laughs> um, I should amend my earlier statement. There is one romantic relationship in Double Zeta that actually gets some focus and attention, and that's Emery's fixation on Bright. I don't have anything more to say about it, but I do have to note that there is that uh, romantic relationship. If you squish Gen and Hay together, Whoop whoop! Squishing Gen and Hay together is illegal. <laughs> his own band grew as he rallied his rallied rallied as he fought in skirmishes here and there. His own band grew as he rallied his own. <laughs> rallied. That's the word now. So long, farewell. The babies and goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. The baby. I feel like my stomach is Sludge Lake. And that's it for Stroke Flanagan. I was like, and then Alice dies. And Bethany, no. <laughs> Alfredo Galbaldi is cleaning up after another busy evening at the newest location in his rapidly expanding Granada style pizza empire. Oh, there we go. That counter got a nice shine on it now, just like Nona Silverware used to be. Mwah. You need any help in here, boss? Nah, I'm almost done. Hey, you go on home early. Spend some time with your sisters. Family's the most important thing. Capiche? Thanks, Mr. Cabaldi. And thanks again for giving us all jobs at your restaurant. I know there are, like, a lot of us. Hey, forget about it. Don't thank me. I needed the help. And you girls are hard workers. I sure wish you could teach my daughter Betty a thing or two, eh?
<sighs> Machiavelli, this really is La Vida. It's a shame Jimmy never could stick to it. I thought that kid had potential, but... Ah, he might come back someday, maybe. Ain't that right, Lucky Haro? Genki. Genki. Arigato, Genki.